My grandfather served in World War II. Spending time with him were the best memories of my life. And when he needed it, he turned to VA for treatment. I became a physician at VA because of my grandfather, so I can help others like him. Now, this is my moment to honor my country, my family, and their legacy of integrity. It means everything to me. I can't imagine working with better doctors or a more dedicated staff. Together, we're building real friendships with veterans and their families, starting with world-class care. Every day, we're helping veterans with wounds both seen and unseen. From our groundbreaking research in PTSD to our advances in physical therapy, I'm fulfilling my life's mission with the help of my team and thanks to these veterans. I'm proud to be a doctor at VA and proud to honor my grandfather every day. Search VA Careers to find out more. Get it, Monday, June 15th, 2020, Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. Hope everyone had a good week outside of podcast land. It is episode 199. Can't believe 200 is right around the corner. This podcast started it back in 2016, and it's really cool to look back at the longevity of this podcast. And, and we got a cool episode next week. I mean, we got a cool episode this week, but for 200, you know, I've never done a benefits breakdown on homelessness. So next week, we're going to tackle that. Uh, specifically, if you remember from a couple episodes ago, VA homelessness programs received $300 million in emergency support via the CARES Act in support of COVID-19. So we're going to break down where that money is going. So if you have a loved one, a battle buddy, um, if you're like my cousin and you're passing by a homeless veteran every day, but don't know where to go to help him from a VA standpoint, definitely check in on next week's episode. Some new ratings, no reviews last week. I, I do appreciate any ratings, reviews, and subs because it does help us in the Apple, Spotify, and Google podcast algorithms. But I appreciate the emails as well, as I did get another email from one of our listeners, Blue Hog, uh, whose hog is now black, not blue. I digress. He says, listening to Born the Battle this morning, you mentioned a recent episode that addressed VA housing loans. I don't know if you've covered this before or if you're interested in a state-specific program, but this program saved my bacon. Get it, Blue Hog? Anyways, he goes in a little bit into his personal life, and then he says, Years later, I was ready to buy a new house, and I found out about the Texas Veterans Land Board. This is a Texas state entity, completely separate from the VA, but it does provide Texas veterans an option if they find themselves in a situation like mine. See, in the personal business part of his email, he stated that he lost his VA home loan benefit. I suppose it's also an option if you have a current VA loan on your home but want to buy an additional parcel. He says, hey, I'm no real estate guy or VA benefits guy, but all I know is that if you're a veteran from Texas or if you're a veteran who's lived in Texas for a while, he doesn't recall the exact amount of time, this is one of the benefits the state of Texas provides. Their website is VLB, that's Victor Lima Bravo, vlb.texas.gov. On that website, there are loans, land sales, and, and more. 
again, this is a Texas state-run program. So this doesn't apply to the majority of us, but I know that 10% of my listeners are from Texas, so that was specifically for you. It's vob.texas.gov. If you're from Texas, check it out. I also pass it on to our writers and editors at blogs.va.gov. And based on what we dig up, we may start doing a benefit blog series on Vantage Point centered around specific state benefits for each state, which I know I would definitely take an interest in um, and see what's out there for, for Virginia or for Washington State, my, my home state that I grew up in. So uh, I hope that gets off the ground. Okay, news releases. Uh, news release. We got one this week. Says for immediate release, VA National Cemeteries resume committal and memorial services halted by COVID-19 pandemic. Says the department's national cemeteries have remained open for interments and visitation throughout the pandemic. However, as a matter of health and safety, committal services and military funeral honors have been deferred since March 23rd. But recently, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs announced that national cemeteries will resume committal services starting on June 9th in all but two VA national cemeteries. VA national cemeteries will contact families who are unable to hold a committal service due to the COVID-19 pandemic to arrange memorial services for their loved ones beginning in July. Interments scheduled on or after June 9th will be offered the option of a committal service at the time of interment. At Calverton and Long Island National Cemeteries, that option will be available starting June 22nd, provided state and local guidance permit. Military funeral honors customarily provided by the Department of Defense and volunteer honor guards will be based on local availability. VA National Cemeteries will continue adherence to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention Guidelines to prevent the spread of COVID-19 by limiting the number of individuals attending committal services practicing physical distancing between individuals not from the same household, ensuring all attendees and employees wear face coverings, encourage frequent use of hand sanitizer, and asking sick individuals to stay home. The number of permitted attendees will vary based on state and local guidelines for gathering sizes provided the facility can accommodate increased attendees while maintaining physical distancing. Families may continue to choose direct interment and opt for a memorial service later when all restrictions have been lifted. Memorial services for veterans and eligible family members who are interred without a committal service between March 23rd and June 8th will commence in July. For more information, visit cem.va.gov and to make burial arrangements at any VA National Cemetery, contact the National Cemetery Scheduling Office at 1-800-535-1117. Families are starting to be able to hold services for their loved ones again to honor them. That is a good news story. All right. So this week's guest was a bit tricky to get for an interview as we had to reschedule a couple of times. He's an army veteran and the frontman for the Bayou Bandits, which is a Southern rock band based out of Phoenix, Arizona. Now, I jokingly thought it was because, hey, he's an artist and I get that because as a documentary producer, I got a little bit of that in me too. Uh, the artist in me. Um, However, it wasn't because of that at all. In addition to being a frontman for the Bayou Bandits, our guest, Army veteran Joshua Strickland, is a traveling nurse who has moved state to state, taking shifts in some of the nation's worst hit COVID-19 areas. He's been working in COVID-19 uh, hospital units. At this point, I told him, 
hey, no problem. I'll work around his schedule. Just let me know when you got time. And we caught up with him when he finally got back home. He wrote a song about those experiences and in honor of his fellow medical professionals who experienced that time with him. So without further ado, here is Army veteran Joshua Strickland of the Bayou Bandits and their song, Nurse's Story, Save You. Enjoy.
All right. That was Nurse's Story, written by Josh Strickland and performed by his band, The Bayou Bandits. Josh, thanks for, thanks for coming on the show, man. Hey, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Now, you're not only a singer songwriter, you're, you're a nurse. You're, you're currently on a COVID unit assignment, right? Or you just came off? I, I just came off of a COVID uh, assignment. I've been working uh, with COVID positive patients since the beginning of the outbreak in April. Well, really since the, 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 the crunch time, the hot and heavy time in the end of March, beginning of April till now. Now you're the first person that I've talked to that has gotten this physically, that has gotten physically this close to the pandemic. Talk to me about it. What are you seeing? It was insane. So, uh, so I was in New Jersey, uh, at the epicenter as part of a rapid response, uh, crisis assignment. So I went there as a travel nurse. I responded like, you know, thousands of other nurses that went out there. Um, it was, it was insane, man. I mean, everything you see on the news was uh, absolutely 100%, uh, valid to a certain extent. I mean, uh, you, the refrigerator trucks, uh, that was all real, you know, people dying in, in the waiting rooms, that was real. Uh, people intubated every two seconds, you know, uh, hundred percent accurate people, uh, are prone. They're intubated in the prone, uh, to help for, uh, you know, better lung expansion. That's a hundred percent true. You know, uh, people dying alone. Uh, it's, 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 that, that's all, that's all hundred percent true, man. It's, it's a completely non-discriminatory, you know, disease progress and, uh, or process, excuse me. And, uh, it's, it's, you just pray every day that you don't catch it. Yeah. God bless you, man. Are you back in Phoenix now? I'm in Phoenix now. Yeah. And so I, I so I left Jersey then, um, and so I actually got sent home early from Jersey because as a travel nurse, they were paying us uh, $10,000 a week Wow! to respond to the crisis. And, uh, you know, because they were getting, they were getting slaughtered up there, man. I mean, some of these nurses were having to work 24 hour shifts. Some of them, you know, half of them quit, half of them got sick. You know, it was just, it was just an absolute madhouse, wild west. And so uh, I got sent home early because eventually uh, the, the, the curve had started to flatten. So what that means sure. is that uh, ER admissions started to dwindle. So uh, new onsets of cases uh, weren't popping up, you know, whereas initially we were having five, 600 to 1,000 new cases a day. It started to slow down uh, very fast. And so, you know, uh, business is business, you know, they're not going to pay an out of towner, uh, yeah. grand a week whenever they can just reallocate their staff now that they get a chance to breathe, you know? And, yeah. uh, and so I got sent home and so, uh, I was furloughed by normal job because patient, the patient census was down because, you know, there was no elective surgeries or anything going on. So I had to go yeah. from COVID to COVID. So, uh, the trend uh, started to finally move out west. Uh, boy, it, it had hit California, but it started to move, you know, Texas, Louisiana, Arizona, you know, uh, those, those types of states, you know, inward. And uh, so I had to go to a, a COVID unit out here. And so um, 
So we have two huge outbreaks uh, in Arizona. We have the Navajo Nation, and then yeah. we had they got hit hard. Oh man, they're they're getting they're getting pummeled. And then uh, we had another few uh, uh, cluster outbreaks down in southern Arizona that I, I helped respond to. So so you're kind of on a tour, just in a different sense. Oh yeah, I'm on the COVID tour, the viral tour. Jesus. Yeah. Well, God bless you, man. Um, Talk to me about the process of writing the song Nurse's Story. What was behind that? So uh, I wrote it because I was bored in New Jersey. Uh, I was sitting in my hotel room because you can't go nowhere. You know, the only place that uh, yeah, the only place that you would go to is work, you know, or if you could, you go to Walmart. So I brought a little travel guitar with me. And so I started writing the song just kind of, you know, I came up with a melody and uh, I just wrote it about some of the stuff that I had seen. You know, I mean, I had just got done working 14 hours. You know, people were just multiple rapid responses all around me. People, I mean, these patients are so fragile, you know, and people that are young, you know, I'm, I'm 28 years old uh, that really have no reasoning to have such a severe reaction to, yeah. to this disease process uh, just dying all around you, you know, and, and it's, it's nobody knows what's going on. I mean, you know, even even, you know, our subject matter experts in the CDC and the White House, you know, we're learning everything by trial and error. And when you're dealing with an enemy that, you know, that hasn't been studied, you know, for too long, you know, it's hard to, to not really be, uh, hopeful to a certain extent. And so, you know, the, the hope uh, and the inspiration that you have to rely on is that of your fellow nurses and your fellow healthcare workers, you know, it's like your battle buddies that are right there in the trenches with you. Uh, that's who you got to lean on. And so I just, you know, I drew inspiration from those folks because they were right there in the battle with me. You know, it was, it's a war, but just a different battlefield. And, uh, and you know, they're out there grinding, struggling, getting sick right there along with us, you know? Um, and so I wrote it about experiences that I had seen as far as patients go, as far as how the nurses were. Uh, and then when I came back to Arizona, uh, I finished it then recorded it and released it. Incredible, man. Um, so you were, rec- you were, you were recommended by a mutual friend and a former guest and a coworker of mine, Henry Huntley. He's a friend of your dad's, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Henry said that, that there was this, this really, really good Southern rock band out in South and out in the South called the Bayou Bandits fronted by his friend's son, yeah. um, a, ve- a veteran and you should have them on. And, and then I listened to Canada, Kandahar, the first song that I listened to of yours. And I was like, yep, let's get them on. So <laughs> well, I appreciate it. absolutely. But before we dive into that part of your life, let's, I want to go back. I want to go way back. Now this was before your military service, but when I was in Iraq, I was in Iraq when Katrina hit. Uh, I was 13. Yeah. Yeah. And my OIC was from New Orleans. Uh-huh. Um, he, now, he didn't know where his wife and kids were for days. And I remember being in country and this happening and going, man, how is this guy going to focus on this mission? But I read that you were there as well, that you were four, you said you were 14. 
I was I was 13, yeah, 13, 14 years old. What was it like going through Katrina? Oh man, it was crazy. Uh so I grew up in a little town called Walker, uh, which is right in between uh Baton Rouge and New Orleans. So uh, so downtown French Quarter from my house is about 40 minutes. Uh and then uh downtown Baton Rouge is about 30 minutes. So I'm pretty much right in the middle. Uh, the only thing separating us is uh, Lake Pontchartrain. Mm. And uh, and Lake Pontchartrain, that's where, you know, the levees have broken and flooded all of the West Bank and Chalmette and uh, the, ninth, the, the Lower Ninth Ward and that whole area. Uh, it was insane, man. I mean, I remember having to go uh, to the gas station with my mama with a shotgun on the front seat, you know, because people were looting. Uh, you know, we were without power, uh, for, it seemed like about a week or two. Uh, and whenever we finally did get power, we had to wait in line for like 16 hours at a home depot, uh, where the line was wrapped around the building. I mean, waiting six, seven hours to get gas. I ate, I think I ate like 50 something peanut butter and jelly sandwiches before we (laughs) had first, you know, hot meals and stuff. And taking showers in a swimming pool. My town grew to over 100,000 people. You know, what seemed like 100,000 people in a day. Wow. Kids uh, were relocated to my town because it was like, you know, the next, like one of the first few towns, as soon as you cross the lake, uh, on your way to Baton Rouge that was out of the flood. And so we still got flooded very badly. Now, did we go underwater like uh, like the West Bank and the Ninth Ward? No, we didn't. Yeah. We, we had about like, I think, $30,000 worth of roof damage. You know, our yard was under like three feet of water. You know, water was getting into people's houses, snakes everywhere. It wasn't the rain from Katrina that... Uh, that flooded the city of New Orleans is basically when Katrina hit the city, uh, it sent a, it sent a, like a tidal wave, like a surge, uh, over Lake Pontchartrain. And that, that, uh, that wave hit one of the levees because those levees were only rated to handle category three hurricanes. So it sent a surge over that wall and completely crashed that wall. And so, uh, so all that water, and everything that you saw in the city of New Orleans, that was from Lake Pontchartrain. That wasn't from the rain itself. I mean, there was a lot of rain. Don't get me wrong, but you know, you had a you had a massive lake, a, a, one of the biggest lakes in the country, outside of the Great Lakes. Just deposit itself right in the middle of New Orleans. Oh yeah, I mean, dude, there were alligators swimming around. There were sharks swimming around. You know, all these tombs were popping up. You know, my uncle, he was with the Louisiana Two Five Six. You know, they, they're the ones that, uh, I believe, because I wasn't in Iraq, but it was Taji, I want to say, that they turned into Tigerland. Yeah. And so uh, the day that he got off the plane from uh, Iraq, he had to go to New Orleans for three months. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. Your uncle served uh, in the in the guard. Did you have any other f- history of service in your family? Oh, yeah. Every man in my family, all the way back to the Civil War. My brothers, uh, my my old my middle brother, uh, he was there for the initial invasion. He was uh, he was a Bradley commander. 
Okay. Um, he was with uh, First Armored. Like, so he was there for the initial push. Um, my oldest brother, he was in Desert Storm. Um, gotcha. My brother-in-law, he was a combat medic uh, in Iraq uh, as well uh, in 08 in uh, Ramadi. Um, my dad, he did two tours in Vietnam. My uncle, he was in Iraq with the Louisiana 256 uh, Infantry. My grandfather, uh, he was in Vietnam. Uh, and then right now, currently, my sister... Uh, she joined the guard about uh, a year and a half ago. I want to say about a year and a half, two years ago. Uh, she yeah. is currently right now uh, deployed to uh, New Orleans uh, to help with the coronavirus uh, situation. Almost like a, a circle of life there, going back oh, to man. New Orleans. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so yeah, my sister, she's she's down there right now fighting the good fight. God bless her too. Um, so, yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, I'd ask you the reason you joined in the first place, but I think we already know the answer. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't have a choice. <laughs> what year What year did you join? Uh, 2008. Gotcha, gotcha. Now, you were in for nine years, right? Uh, actually, in total of about 10 years, 10, 10 11 years. Oh, okay. Um, obviously, a deployment or two to Afghanistan, correct? Because, you know, yeah. of course, the song Kandahar. Give me, while you were in, give me either a best friend or your greatest mentor while you were in. Uh, greatest mentor um, would have to be two people. So uh, it would be Chad Runyon, who was, uh, he was with the 101st. Uh, he was mm -hmm. a sergeant. He was a team sergeant of mine. I believe he was uh, – he would kill me if I messed it up. I, I believe he, he was either a Rakasan or a Kurahi. But, uh, man, he was bad. He was he was a bad dude, and he was only like five <laughs> feet tall. Uh, and uh, But he was a Cav Scout, and uh, and so loved him to death and uh, still love him to death uh, and talked to him quite a bit. And, uh, and the other one would probably be Adam Carter. Uh, he was an airborne infantryman with 82nd, served in Iraq. Both of them were Iraq uh, and Afghanistan. I believe Runyon was in Afghanistan. And uh, they were just solid dudes. I mean, they were the epitome of what I thought uh, or and what I think a soldier should be. I mean, they were just, you know, they were they were squared away, you know, and, uh, you know, they were high speed and they were just good at what they did. And but my best friend. Is Josh Miller. Did you guys get in trouble together or did he make sure that you stayed out of trouble? Oh, we got in trouble, made sure we stayed out of trouble, made sure we stayed alive together. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> awesome. Yeah, he was a he was a he was a combat engineer. Uh and we were we were the same age. Uh and he's uh from western he, as he calls it, western upstate New York. Western upstate New York. Like Rochester, oh. Buffalo area. Got you, got you, got you. He said he ain't no city folks like in New York City. <laughs> yeah, New Yorkers they get kind of touchy with that. They want to if they're not from the city, they will they will let you know. They oh, will yeah. definitely let you know. Um, so a total of ten years. Um, so that must have taken you to about 2018, almost just a couple of years ago. Yeah. Why did you decide to get out? I just wanted to, you know, try something new in my life. You know, I mean. Uh, I love the army. I'm grateful for the army. Uh, 
you know, I mean, they gave me everything, you know, I mean, um, you know, I bought my house with the VA home loan. Uh, I finished my bachelor's, uh, you know, on the GI bill, um, you know, everything. So I, I owe a, a, a very, very, you know, significant portion of my success, you know, in life to the military. And, you know, a lot of folks don't realize, they think, you know, oh, you just join the army. Oh, you're going to get killed. You know, no, man. I mean, there's so many, so many benefits that you get out of the military. And, uh, but, uh, you know, I got tired of shaving, you know, I got tired of, <laughs> I got tired, of, I, got, I got tired of waking up doing PT. You know, I wanted to stay up till three or four o'clock in the morning. Well, I would do that sometimes anyways and drink beer sure. and then go do PT. But, you know, uh, I, I just wanted, I just wanted to move on to the next phase of my life. You know, now, uh, that's not to say if the next world war three didn't kick off that I wouldn't want to join back up and go, go back overseas because I'm sure as you know, when you go overseas and then you come back and garrison, uh, things are just not really the same to me. It seems, you know I mean? It's like you have this yearning, you know, this, this, this weird sense of longing to go back overseas, you know, because, uh, in Afghanistan, and I'm sure similar to Iraq, yeah, you know, life was life was pretty much easy. I mean, yeah, you just the only thing you worried about was living and dying. You know, you didn't, you know, yeah, I would think about my son. You know, because at that time I only had uh, my son. Uh, you know, I wasn't concerned about bills. I wasn't concerned about work. I was just I was worried about, you know, rolling over an ID. Or getting shot and that was it you know everything else you know didn't seem to matter you know and uh and and it just seemed like an easier way to to live you know to a certain extent i mean i know a lot of joes they deal with that when they come home so yeah no i think you know of all the of all the fallacies of the hurt locker oh god yeah i think the one thing that movie got right was when uh is it jeremy renner jeffrey renner the main character yeah. he's sitting there in the after he gets back he's sitting there in the supermarket watching watching his kids or watching his wife get milk or something and you just saw in his eyes like how the yearning to go back yeah because of uh, the money yeah. you know it's like this is this is the mundane life is is not it, there's, there's just something different about it when you come back you know yeah you know i mean it you know like when i remember when i first got back uh and the first time i ever got behind a wheel you know it was hard for me because uh you know i was you know i was so accustomed to you know over there you don't stop for nobody you know i mean yeah, you're running. You're running through red lights. You're running through stop signs. You know anybody that gets too close to you, you know uh, they're lucky if they don't get a pin flare shot at them. You know, yeah. uh, you know. And then whenever you get back into the civilian world, uh, you know, trying to reintegrate back into a normal sense of society, you know, it, it, there's definitely a, a, an adjustment period that you have to go through. Uh, you know, and uh, unfortunately, a lot of Joes, uh, when they get home, they can't, they can't, they have trouble dealing with that, you know, and, uh, 
And so, yeah, I, I remember going through a drive-through uh, and trying to and driving back on normal city streets uh, was very very weird for me, especially because Phoenix. Uh, Phoenix is a beautiful city, but Phoenix looks exactly like Kandahar City. The only the only difference is is the cactus. True, true. The mountains are the same, except over there, they're in Afghanistan. They're a little bit higher, but the same the same type of shell rock, you know that it is. It's all the same. Now, was that your was that your role out there in Afghanistan to, to drive on convoys or no? I was so I, I was a driver. I was a driver. I was a gunner, and I was dismounted, and I helped uh, perform key leader engagements. Very good. Very good. So you got out in 2018 or 2017. I, I, what, what year was it? 2018. Got you. What um, what was it like getting out? What was your transition like? Um. It wasn't anything like too crazy. It was nice because I finally got to sleep in, you know, and uh, <laughs> I didn't have to report. You know, I didn't I wasn't worried about having, you know, because I was I was civil affairs. And so uh, and so, you know, there's constant talks about going to the Philippines, constant talks about going to Korea, constant talks about, you know, go, getting sent over here, sent over there. And, yeah. you know, to not have to worry about any of that kind of stuff was just really nice and focus on my education. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why, uh, why nursing? Uh, the truth, if I can be as uncanny yeah. as possible, because I didn't have absolutely. Much, I, I didn't have much of a choice else. Uh, no, I'm just well, it's sort of actually, um, but no, because uh, you know, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do, to be quite honest. And sure. uh, my wife's an RN. And so that was a major inspiration of it. And so, um, so, you know, initially I was going to go to border patrol, but, uh, mm-hmm. I always wanted, I was always a singer. And so I wanted to incorporate, uh, my music, but, uh, anyways, I, I thought I had found a loophole, uh, to be quite honest, when it came to the nursing, mm-hmm. because I tell you this, I'll go to Afghanistan any day before I ever go back to nursing school. It was hard. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, my wife had, you know, convinced me to go to nursing school. Cause had you asked me when I was younger, if I'd ever been a nurse, I'd have just kind of looked at you and laughed. You know, I, I grew up, you know, a country boy, you know, hunting, fishing. I like being outdoors, you know, uh, yeah you know, that type of thing, you know, I like the action and, and in nursing, there is a lot of action. So I was wrongly mistaken about that. But, um, I bet anyways, uh, so I found a loophole. I, I was, I told my wife, I said, all right, you know, I'm gonna go to nursing school, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm gonna do it, you know? And so I went and got my bachelor's, but my initial plan was that she didn't know about until later on down the line, which she definitely put, uh, an abrupt halt to that. Was, uh, <laughs> my my initial plan was is that I was going to go back overseas as a civilian contractor. Oh, okay. And so that was that was my rationale. And so I was like, you know what? I'm gonna go knock out this nursing degree, get my license, and then immediately I'm gonna go back overseas because you know a lot of those uh, a lot of SF teams, you know, they they hire uh, civilian contractors. You know, um, like medics and things. How like did the that. how did the wife how did the wife take this news? Uh, 
Yeah. She squashed it, huh? Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> basically, I had a choice uh, as in if I wanted to sleep on the couch or not. And I said, well, I, I know where I enjoy sleeping. And, uh, and that fixed that, you know, because, you know, uh, we had known each other, uh, while I was in Afghanistan and the fact that I had went over there and, you know, uh, luckily thank the Lord, you know, I came home, um, you know, she didn't want to have to go through that, you know, which, you know, I understand, uh, you know, she's a wife, she's a mother, uh, you know, you know, it's, it's scary, you know, for them, you know, just like the other millions of, of spouses that have gone through that. And the fact that I already went there and now I was volunteering, you know, putting myself back in that situation. Uh, yeah. You know, she 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 didn't want to go through that. And so uh, she yeah, she pretty much nixed that as soon as I said anything. <laughs> well, it gives you it gives you more time to focus on your music career, too, I guess. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. So let's 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 get into let's get into that a little bit. So um, in addition to being a nurse, uh, you're you're the lead singer of this band yeah. by you bandits. Um, you had to have had some musical background in your life before the band. So where did that come from? I grew up singing. My dad is a singer. My brother's a singer. Um, and so uh, my brother's always, you know, my brother's 15 years older than me. So I always looked up to him playing football or singing, you know, whatever. And so, uh, and my, but then eventually he grew up and left the house. And so I was the only boy in the house with my two sisters. They were older than me. I, I'm the baby. And so my daddy, he would always sing these old timey country songs uh, to me. And so, uh, you know, so I grew up singing in the church or, or wherever else. And so that's just really where I, I, I owned the craft was just, I grew up doing it, you know? So, uh, so how did Bayou Bandits start? How did, how did a Louisiana man end up in Phoenix? And, and by the way, I love that city, that in Scottsdale, um, oh, yeah. I graduated, I love, I graduated from Arizona state. Um, so I, you know, I was doing online school, but I actually went there to walk and got a day before graduation in Scottsdale. Definitely drank some beer at the Rusty Spur. Oh um, yeah, that's just <laughs> that's just definitely. Uh, I just love that area, dude. So I used to play at the Rusty Spur for three years, every day, every week. Really, I played there three days a week for three years. Oh man, that, I mean, that's just a just a cool vibe. That whole bar, dude. Small world. Holy cow. Hmm. Matter of fact, so uh, let me tell you. So uh, they adopted me. I was I was the youngest person uh, because they've had the the same lineup for years, and so uh, the owner really took me in, and uh, I played there three days a week for three years, all while finishing school. Like that was my job was at the Rusty Spur. Oh wow! And uh, and that's how I supported myself and, and my family. And um, I actually was found. Uh, by Jordan Klepper from Comedy Central uh, at the Rusty Spur. And then he flew me out to Tijuana to uh, to be a part of his uh, documentary on Comedy Central, the Jordan Klepper show. And uh, but he discovered I didn't I, I did not know that. And you're the second veteran I've interviewed that's been on that show. Yeah, I was there. He flew, <laughs> he flew me to Tijuana uh, to be a part of the Jordan Klepper show. It was awesome. And he and he discovered me right there uh, in the Rusty Spur. Got you. Very very cool. Do you know uh, Jan Ostrom? 
He's an independent wrestler. He was on Clever. Probably if I saw a picture. Got you. No, he's a uh, he's in the archives. Uh, he's also he's a a, a veteran, army veteran, uh, VA employee. He did he did his own documentary about uh, how wrestling helped him with his PTSD. Uh-huh. Uh, also on Clever. So it's very it's very cool you brought that up because I didn't I I did not know that about you at all. Yeah. So I, I speak Spanish, and so anyways, uh, the documentary that he was doing was one about deported vets, and interesting. Uh, yeah, and so he needed a singer, and so he just so happened to be shooting production right there in Scottsdale, and uh, and he walks into the Rusty Spur and he hears me singing, and he he like as soon as I take a break, he he sat there the entire time, and uh, he said do you, it was funny. He's like, "Do you know who I am?" And I was like, "No," <laughs> and uh, and uh, you know because dude, we see so many people there, and so anyway, he's like, "Do you know who I am?" I was like, "No," and. Uh, and he's like, are you being serious? I said, no, bro. I don't know who you are. <laughs> and, uh, and he's like, well, my name is Jordan Klepper. Da, 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 da. He said, you know, I really like your voice. He said, would you be interested in flying to Tijuana to sing a part of my documentary? And I was like, yeah, sure. You know, because over there <laughs> you meet you meet so many celebrities, you know, that co- especially the Spur, you know, it's a significant place that, uh, dude, I've been offered labels, offered to play at like, the uh what's that uh horse show up there in canada no idea i don't know idea uh i don't i don't know whatever so they you know all these big things you know and it all playing at the playing at the spur eagles opportunity yeah yeah well to a certain i mean any anywhere you play but definitely in scottsdale you know and so uh and so anyways he's like hey uh I was like, all right, cool. So I'm thinking, you know, BS, you know, whatever. And sure, sure enough, the next day, I'm getting a phone call from New York City that says, hey, uh, Joshua Strickland, um, make sure that your email is correct. Uh, we have a plane ticket for you to fly to Tijuana. I said, holy crap. I said, <laughs> I said, all right. So a day later, I was in Tijuana partying with them, hanging out. <laughs> doing the Doing the thing. We had a good time. And uh, so he's he's a cool dude, man. We still talk every once in a while. Very cool. How did you? How did the Bayou Bandits come about? So the Bayou Bandits, how that came across, was uh, me and my uh, me and uh, our lead guitar player, who's also uh, like my best buddy. Um, his name's Jeremy. Uh, we were playing a private show, and uh, you know, once my brother had moved back to Louisiana because he was living out here for a little while once he retired. Yeah. Um, we needed to come up with a name because we were playing like a corporate gig. And, uh, and so I was just going by the Joshua Strickland band, you know, which is kind of cliche, you know, I mean, there's some bands can pull it off, but it just didn't really go all over that well. And, uh, and so, you know, the folks were like, well, what should, what, what do y'all call yourselves? And I said, the Joshua Strickland band. And they said, Oh man, you got to come up with something cooler than that. You know, and they were half being serious, half joking, you know, and uh and i said well i wanted something to highlight where i was from because i was i am a louisiana man and they said i said something i said the bayou so me and jeremy were just thinking i said the bayou you know and then i said how about the bayou bandits it was just like that right off the cuff you know no long thoughts about it and uh we just went with it and it's stuck got you got you how many people are in the band you got you there's four of us so there's me 
there's Jeremy Maggot, who's a lead guitar player. There's Paul Williams, who's a bass player, and Mr. Stevie Bell Castro on the drums. Got you, got you. Shout well, out to those guys. Absolutely, absolutely. Got to shout out to the bandmates, man. Oh man, um, they're, they're grinding. Now you guys are supposed to be on tour, correct? You guys were supposed to be on tour right now or this summer? We were supposed to be on tour right before this whole coronavirus lockdown. We were actually in the French Quarter downtown about to play a big show uh, and uh, with Sam Price and the True Believers. Sam Price is from the Honey Island Swamp Band, which is a famous band down in the South. Got you. And uh, no sooner than I can put a damn spoon up to my mouth about to eat some etouffee celebrating being back home the governor john bell comes over the breaking news and has now for the first time in my entire life has locked down the entire city of new orleans and the entire state of louisiana like even even during katrina the french quarter was still open <laughs> wow i didn't know that yeah wow this was like the first time i had ever seen the streets of new orleans like bare like there was nothing yeah. It was insane. Yeah, they got they got hit early. I remember when it came when it came to the VA, that was the hardest hit. That's the hardest hit area. Early. That was the hardest hit area early on. You know. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then uh, and then it seemed like you know New Orleans got really hit, and then uh, it started to move up the like what we call the river parishes. So like the parishes mm. along the river, like uh, like Assumption, you know, those types of places, you know, where it started to really get spread throughout the South down there. Got you. How is the um? How's the band be getting by? Is it is it? Are you guys doing anything with the band right now? Or uh, I mean, we've done we've done we've done a couple live streams. Uh, you know, and uh, we sell merch and stuff like that. And me and Jeremy really uh, founded this together. So Jeremy has been with me since the the beginning. Uh, yeah. And so, but I, I kind of take it upon myself, you know, to make sure that, uh, uh, the guys are, are taken care of, you know? So like if I do, uh, a, like a live stream acoustic, you know, where people are donating money, you know, I'll donate it to the guys, you know, to kind of help them out, give them a little something to, you know, to get through the, through the hard times, you know? Good to go. That's awesome. Yeah. They're my troops, man. I take care of them. Absolutely. It's that's, that's what that's, you know, taken from your training. Absolutely. Um, what's one thing that you learned in service that you do that you've taken with you that you do today? Oh man. If I had to pick one vigilance, I like, I am aware of everything, uh, that's pretty much going on in my immediate surrounding. You know, uh, like even on stage, I know where the entrances and the exits are, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> I, uh, like I see everything that's going on around me, you know, like, uh, even though sometimes it's hard cause you know, being on stage, you know, you got bright lights and things like that. Uh, I, you know, a lot of times I wear shades on stage because like my drummer, uh, Stevie says, Dude, you're a rock star. You can wear shades at night. That's the only time. <laughs> that's the only time that it's acceptable is whenever you're a singer in a band. 
And so, <laughs> that's the rock star life. That's part of the rock star life, bro. Yeah, exactly. Stevie's <laughs> crazy, man. I, he, Stevie, dude, I love that dude. But I always see everything. So, like, I wear my shades so I can see the crowd and stuff. And uh, it's, it's just I'm, – I'm just attentive. You know, I, I see – you know, I, you know, I can see what's going on in my peripherals, you know, and different things like that. And so, uh, I guess just, I'm, I'm just aware of my surroundings. I'm vigilant, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm ready for anything. Very good. Josh, is there, is there a veteran nonprofit or individual whom you've worked with or had experience with who you'd like to mention? Absolutely. Southern Arizona musicians for healing, which is, uh, is a nonprofit organization that uh, brings awareness to uh, PTSD amongst veterans and first responders uh, through music. And uh, that's a really great organization because it gives a lot of singers that haven't necessarily been involved in the military uh, a chance to be able to have an avenue to give back to the military or to these first responders' families uh, by way of this organization. And that's headquartered down here in, uh, Southern Arizona, uh, down in Tucson. Now, Josh, I, I understand that, uh, you've also founded a 501c nonprofit. Uh, it's a motorcycle association, right? I, 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 I wasn't the sole founder, no, but I was, I was, I am an original founding member. Yes. So I ride motorcycles. Um, and, uh, I believe that's a great sense of therapy, you know, wind therapy, um, and, uh, their name is veterans for veterans motorcycle association. We are very active in Arizona in this community. Um, we do everything from, we, you know, help veterans that are in need to, uh, getting phone calls at three o'clock in the morning from wives and mothers saying, Hey, you know, my son or my daughter is going through a crisis, uh, you know, and, and they're extremely combative and agitated, you know, uh, can y'all just come down and talk to them, you know, uh, because I'm sure, as you know, it's a lot easier talking to folks that have been in the situation versus, uh, folks that haven't necessarily been in that situation. There's a level of trust there. Exactly. And, uh, and so we've done that. We, you know, we take, we do, uh, like Secret Santa, you know, for veterans that uh, have fallen on hard times, you know, where we uh, all, uh, you know, get brand new toys and stuff and deliver it to them. So that way, you know, their kids and stuff can have a wonderful Christmas. Um, and we're just extremely involved in the veteran community. Toy drives, food drives, crisis intervention. I mean, hell, we, we go up every Thursday before this lockdown to the VA medical center and volunteer just to play bingo with some of those vets uh, that are there because, you know, a lot of those guys are there for long-term care and they don't have families. So they go down there to the rec room uh, to play bingo, you know, as far as, uh, to, as part of one of their activities. And so they get to see some of these younger vets, you know, and, uh, and interact with them. You know, it, it shows them that, Hey, there's folks out there that still care. A lot of veterans listen to this podcast. Um, any kind of any kind of advice that you might have, uh, have for a transitioning veteran or anything like that? Yeah, uh, I mean, everybody has their own story, 
you know, uh, you know, everybody has their demons. Lord knows that I have mine. I mean, I'm 28 years old. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've, uh, I've been very blessed to be successful, you know, because, uh, you know, my mom and my daddy taught me hard work. You know, uh, I grew up very fortunate, thank the Lord. But my father, um, my father is extremely successful, you know, um, but he grew up with nothing, you know. And so he taught us all, you know, hard work to get whatever it is that you wanted in life. And, um, you know, so at an early age, I was exposed to uh, to trials and tribulations. I mean, I was like I said, I was 13 when I went through Katrina. Uh, I was 22. I was 22 in southern Afghanistan, Kandahar City and all of RC South, you know, uh, Hassab, Spinboldak, Weish, um, that whole area in the lower Argonaut River Valley. I was 23 when I came home and I had to fight for custody of my oldest son, which is why I moved, which is how I made my way to Arizona um, because I won 50, mm. 50 custody. Uh, you know, then by the time that I was 28, you know, I was on the front lines helping deal with this coronavirus. You know, so I've had a lifetime of hard times, but at the at the end of the day, the thing that that drives me is the fact that, you know, even though you may not realize it, you know, the sun is always going to rise again tomorrow. And, uh, you know, uh, for every, you know, cold and dark and rainy day, eventually the sun's going to come out. You know, and and that's the way I kind of try to view life to give me hope uh, with some of the things that I deal with. Um, yeah. You know, because uh, that's that's the issue, man, is a lot of these guys, they come out, they don't know the what route that they're going to take, what steps they're going to do. You know, and that that's probably the only thing I don't like about the military and the army in general is that they don't really harp on what benefits the VA has to offer while you're still in. And then whenever these Joes get out, you know, the, like the only thing that I knew about was, you know, I mean, other than from my dad. So I was lucky in regards to him, but yeah. you know, was the GI bill, you know, you didn't hear anything about like voc rehab. You didn't hear anything about like service connected disability. You didn't hear anything about like, uh, you know, benefits from the VA medical center and like, uh, counseling and things like that, you know, so what I would recommend is, is learning what the VA has to offer because the VA, I mean, they've, they've been beautiful to me. I mean, I haven't had one issue with them and they've been more than gracious. Absolutely. Uh, I'm, that's the whole reason I'm doing this podcast, man, is to, is to learn and then try to share what I've learned. So, um, I, I, I use this podcast as an opportunity to do that, uh, every, every five episodes. So if you look at episode 195, 200, 205, things like that, I, I go internal, I go back to the VA and I, and I do what's called a benefits breakdown. I'll go find some office or some program that maybe people know about like the GI bill or maybe p things that 
not many people know about like vet tech or, or exactly. uh, diabetes education or something like that. And, and try to just break it down with whatever subject matter expert I can find. So oh, dude, if rehab, you, whew, game changer, life changer for anybody, you know, that is service connected that, you know, has either used all their GI bill that still has school to complete, you know, Folk rehab. I will praise that place every day from the highest mountaintop. I mean, those guys are amazing. Then I, I I'm going to take your advice. I'm, that'll be one of my one of my next ones. Absolutely, oh, yeah. within the next three or four episodes. I, I hope. Just got to find a good subject matter expert. All right, very good. Um, well, being as you're you're the actually the very first musical guest that I've had on the born the battle. Oh, wow. uh, I've been, I, yeah, yeah. And I've been the host since episode one thirty five. Uh, Tim, the previous host, he's had musical guests before, but you're my first man. Um, so let's go out with another song. Uh, this one was written about your time in Afghanistan, correct? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was written, uh, as a, uh, dedication to one of my good buddies, uh, that unfortunately lost his battle with PTSD whenever we got home. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, you know, we were running, you know, missions on a day-to-day basis. And uh, we were real close with this, uh, you know, one of my buddies. I was real close with one of my buddies. And he was he was another one uh, that was a mentor. He was, he was the epitome of what a soldier should be. Uh, airborne infantryman, ranger qualified from the 82nd. Um, what was his name? Ben James. And uh, anyways, he had gone over there uh, like four or five times. Uh, And so uh, anyways, basically, whenever uh, he got home, um, he just, you know, he had a lot of demons, you know, uh, unfortunately, and uh, he uh, succumbed to those, you know, and uh, and it was it was very hard, you know, because, you know, you hear about stuff like that. But whenever it hits close to home, you know, like, and, you know, obviously, you know, somebody that you're in the trenches with, you know, somebody that you're eating next to, you're running missions with, you know, you're, you know, uh, I mean, y'all are living together, you know, and, and, and making sure y'all don't die together. Uh, when you find out, uh, that they've, uh, lost their battle, it, it really hits home in a different way. And so uh, I wrote that song to honor his memory. Um, and so, uh, you know, the song, it highlights, you know, whenever we came under uh, IDF, um, you know, and kind of from a soldier's perspective, uh, what it was like. And, uh, and that song was really a, a tribute to him. All right. Here it is, Kandahar. It's 3 a.m. and the sirens are going off. Another rocket attack. and got my ammo in my 50 pound sack a hundred boys headed to war 
eyes at night We hear a rocket attack I've tried to talk and tell you about it But it ain't the same was Kandahar by Bayou Bandits. Some heavy stuff, those two songs. I want to thank Joshua for taking the time to come on Born the Battle. For more information on Joshua, you can find it at thebayoubandits.com. Make sure you add the the at the front of the URL or you won't find it. Our Born the Battle Veteran of the Week comes by way of Yellow Springs News out of Yellow Springs, Ohio. He is Marine Corps veteran Jonas Bender. Jonas Albert Bender was born on June 14, 1925, in New Iberia, Louisiana. He moved to Tougaloo, Mississippi, where he grew up. Jonas completed one year of chemistry at Tougaloo College before World War II, as he had planned to become a doctor. He was drafted into the Marine Corps at 18 and served in the Marine Corps from 1943 to 46. At the time of his draft, the Marine Corps was a segregated institution. Jonas was one of the first African Americans to serve in the Marine Corps as a Monterford Point Marine, now known as Camp Johnson. He trained at the segregated Monterford Point in North Carolina and went on to serve in the Pacific as a radar operator during the war. 
Jonas and his fellow 400 surviving Montford Point Marines were finally recognized and honored for their service to their country in the summer of 2012. They were all awarded the Congressional Gold Medal in a ceremony in Washington, D.C. In 1946, Jonas left the Marines and went on to graduate from Tougaloo College, then completed his master's degree in public relations at Boston University. After his experience in the segregated Marine Corps, Jonas became motivated to spend his life making the United States a more welcoming and inclusive place for all races. Jonas worked for the Urban League, where he helped people secure jobs and housing. From there, he went to work for Frigidaire to improve employment practices and then ultimately settled at General Motors for the remainder of his career, working in human resources to continue this important work. In 1965, Jonas and his wife Ethel moved to Yellow Springs. Jonas loved Yellow Springs and spent much of his time in retirement volunteering to contribute to the Yellow Springs community. His particular passion was genealogy research. October 1st, 2012 was declared Jonas Bender Day in Yellow Springs to honor his many years of devotion to the Yellow Springs community in support of youth education, the arts, and equality for all people. Sadly, Jonas recently passed away on May 30th, 2020, at the age of 94. We honor his service. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a Born the Battle Veteran of the Week, you can. Just send an email to podcast at va.gov, include a short write-up, and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. And if you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, pretty much any podcatching app, note a phone, computer, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, RallyPoint, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, no matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I am reminded by people smarter than me to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast, nor any media products or services they may provide. And once again, we're going to go out with Kandahar. And if you're a veteran who would like to submit your music to the show, hit us up at podcast at va.gov and give us all the pertinent details and we'll use your art as our outro. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you right here next week. Take care.
So sometimes with the with the show I do, it's called an after the show show because I, for the lack of a better name, that's just what I call it. You know, after after the podcast episode is over, after the music's done playing, sometimes you get a little bit of a bonus. So I want you to tell me the story that you just told me going from D.C. to New York. So there I was in Washington, D.C. I love D.C., by the way. Uh, like I was saying, uh, I like eating at Ben's Chili Bowl because I like I love hot dogs and you know, chili dogs and all that other stuff. But anyways, so me and some of my buddies, um, we had a night out on the town and, uh, you know, we had went like earlier in the day, we had went to like all the awesome museums. I mean, we went to like the Holocaust museum, which is phenomenal. I, 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 you know, implore anybody that's never been to go check it out. It's extremely humbling, like seeing all the shoes and stuff. Um, but anyway, so, uh, you know, like in, good true soldier fashion at the end of the work day, we all decided to go get drunk <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and we, uh, we went and got hammered. And, um, anyways, uh, so what happened was we had went to Chinatown. And so we started in Chinatown and, uh, we got really, really drunk over there and kind of made our way around DC and we got so hammered by the time that, uh, we were done we wanted to go back to Chinatown. And, uh, and so we hopped on a bus and said, Hey, take us to Chinatown. And, uh, but by this time we were so drunk 
that uh, we actually woke up in Chinatown, New York, because we all passed out on the bus. And oh so God. what happened was, uh, I guess there is a mega bus, which is a double decker uh, bus that runs from Chinatown, D.C. to Chinatown, New York. And so, uh, yeah, that's my drunken D.C. story. So we got drunk in Chinatown, D.C., woke up drunken. Chinatown, New York, and had to find our way back. 